And our first reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. This, then, is how you ought to regard us, as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Our second reading from Matthew chapter 6. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honoured by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father, who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I'm going to pray and we'll explore that very profound passage together. Let's pray. Father, come to our hearts now by your Holy Spirit. Open, open our hearts. Transform them. Fill our hearts with all joy and peace in believing. May we see the world then filled with the knowledge of Christ's glory. Amen. So in the chancel up the front here is a prayer desk. Uh, and in the corner of the desk is a little plaque. I see it most Sundays. The plaque 
says, without reference to the donor, it simply says, he knows my name. Such confidence in God, and such peace in the gift, and a great reminder to me that the heart before God matters most, matters more than the gift. Jesus said, Matthew 6, verse 3, but when you give, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. He knows my name. So we continue our series in the Sermon on the Mount, which is classic Jesus. Today we begin six weeks. In chapter 6, an antidote to fear. And in chapter 7, an antidote to pride. All words given in order to know how to live a blessed life following Jesus in this world. Not another one, this world. This complex world. Not like the Pharisees who did behaviour rather than heart. Today, Matthew 6, verses 1 to 18, could be three sermons, of course, could be three messages, but by keeping them one, we gain the overall message of Jesus. I don't know if you've heard the term, I presume you have. Virtue signalling is a thing right now. Virtue signalling is where you don't just do the right thing, but you show it as well, usually online. You don't just care for someone, you show you care. To be fair, I think most people do such things to perhaps demonstrate that there's a better way to live life. They're trying to perhaps negotiate the narrative of the world in which we live and we're saying it's, it's too nasty and how about we make it nicer. They're trying to show that they're part of the solution rather than the problem. But to be fair, it also comes off as a bad look. You know, I'm good and others aren't, uh, is potentially the way it looks. You know, I'm part of the solution, others are part of the problem. Virtue signaling is both a slur and an observation. It was coined as a slur in the last decade, but I'm not, I'm not interested in the slur. I am interested in the observation. And turns out Jesus is also interested in the observation and always has been. That is, Jesus is concerned that whatever virtue or good behaviour or pious activity you take part in, you do it not with the motivation of being seen by others for their praise. Jesus has a word for such people. He calls them hypocrites who trumpet their own goodness. They do it to be honoured by men. In fact, as I understand it, the word uh, hypocrite comes from a, a Greek word, hypocrites, which means actor. In other words, they're people with a mask on. They do the good thing to hide something inside of them. The truth is that all of us, to some degree, have a fear of others. We want their approval. I want their approval. We fear their disapproval. It's a real fear. I feel it. It's a real fear, and it resides deep in every human heart. Os Guinness in the United States, he wrote, most of us, whether we are aware of it or not, do things with an eye to the approval of some audience or another. You know, those of us who do things publicly, pray publicly, speak publicly, that's us, that's me. I feel it. I believe in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is offering us an antidote to a poison, to a kind of fear. And the antidote being that we have a higher care, 
care about someone else, a better care than worrying about our peers. The antidote is to know that we are seen by an unseen one. We're seen by a Father who is in heaven, who sees the heart. And this knowledge is too wonderful. It's a potentially uh, transforming knowledge. Os Guinness goes on, the question is not whether we have an audience, but which audience we'll have. In chapter 6, verses 1 to 18, on pages 6 and 7 of your order of service, Jesus says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others, to be, to be seen by them. If you do, he says, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. And then he gives three examples attached to good practices, prayer, giving, fasting. But each time Jesus appeals to this one transforming observation, that your Father, who is unseen, see, who sees what's done in secret, he'll reward you, verse 4, 6, and 18. He'll notice, or as Paul says in that first reading that Emma read to us a few moments' time, it's the praise from God that counts, not the praise from others. So don't be afraid of others. Be mindful of your Father in heaven's approval. I believe that the whole chapter of, of, of Matthew 6 is an antidote to fear. So next week in, in verses 9 to 24, he says to store up treasure in heaven now, you know, have your significance in God now, rather than gaining significance here and now. You cannot serve both God and money, Jesus says. That's next week. And in the same vein in verses 25 to 30, which is to the end of the chapter, he says not to worry about accumulating things, even necessary things. Jesus says, why, why do you worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? Don't Pagans run after these things. They're afraid they won't get them. They're afraid that their competing gods are going to compete in a way that uh, their god won't deliver for them, and so they scramble and control. But Jesus says, your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. Instead, Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and your Father in heaven will take care of the rest. That's in two Sundays' time. I'm looking forward to the series. Are you? In other words, we're invited to have an inner faith in God rather than to cultivate our fears, even understandable ones. After all, Jesus ends chapter 6 with these words, Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. And then he winks at you, by the way. It's humour. I mean, it's not belly laugh humour. It's not going to stand up in a comedy club. But do not worry about tomorrow. Let tomorrow worry about itself. Let tomorrow do the worrying. Hand off the worry to tomorrow. They'll do it. They're good at it. They do it all the time. He does it all the time. He, she, tomorrow. Now, this is not an easy path to go down, but it's the path of the disciple of Jesus. It's the path of the one pursuing deeper discipleship. <clears throat> and it leads to human flourishing and peace, a blessed life. So for the next six weeks, we're reopening Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and his antidote to fear of approval this week, of significance next week, of loss the following week, and then three weeks in an antidote to pride and presumption in chapter 7. The warning of the chapter is in 6 verse 1, 
Jesus said, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others in order to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. So take care, that's not you. It means you'll need to pulse check the heart. It'll mean you'll need to examine your motives. It'll mean you'll need to take a searching and fearless moral inventory of your life, of your inners, inner life. Because if you practice your righteousness to be seen by others, then you get the reward. You're seen by others. They say, you're tops. Aren't you tops? You signaled your virtue and I saw it. Aren't you tops? But in a corresponding way, God knows that such motivations are toxic and he won't reward you, which I think here means he won't notice you, approve of you. It's a warning. But Jesus goes on and offers the antidote applied across three disciplines as examples. He talks about generosity in verses 2 to 4, about prayer in verses 5 to 6, and about fasting in verses 16 to 18, and that outline is on page 8 of your orders of service. And each time Jesus follows a pattern, these are written in your outlines, he only deviates from the pattern uh, to show a model of prayer, namely the Lord's Prayer, and he contrasts such a prayer against pagan anxieties about their competing gods. John Dixon talked about this when he talked about superstition a number of weeks ago. So firstly, let's apply this across the first topic, generosity, briefly. The pattern's a little bit deeper than this, a little bit more complex, but you can get it easily. It's simply this. When you do something, give to the needy, for example, don't do it like the hypocrites who love to be seen by others. The hypocrites are probably the Pharisees. They have the mask on, hypocrites, they're actors. They protect their goodness status, even to the point of killing Jesus. That's how far they're willing to go to protect their goodness status. They wear the mask of goodness. Don't be like them, but instead, when you give, or when you pray, or when you fast, uh, give in a secret way. Uh, Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. That's a pattern three times. The hypocrites give, uh, in verses 2 to 4, to be honoured by others, to virtue signal. For people to say, aren't you good? Not like those stingy people. Not like the greedy capitalists and billionaires. And it gives an extreme example. When they give, to be honoured by others, they announce it with trumpets. Who knows whether they had, you know, real trumpets. My kids weren't watching that, so they're not embarrassed. But we now have a phrase, to blow your own trumpet, to brag or boast about your own abilities, your skills, your successes, your achievements, your generosity. In other words, you make noises about it. The origins of that phrase, to blow your own trumpet, are debated. Some say it's from ancient Roman times. Perhaps Jesus is drawing on an ancient a common phrase. It's translated in the English fairly early on, 1576. Abraham Fleming wrote, I will sound the trumpet of mine own merits. The idea is simple. Everyone knows you're giving in the synagogue or on the streets, in church, or perhaps now on Facebook. It's quite remarkable, isn't it, that in the last 10 years we've had the greatest street marketplace, synagogue, church, 
got a worldwide platform, a worldwide platform in which to virtue your, signal your virtue. I think Jesus says with a touch of humor, they've already, they've got their reward, they got noticed, they got what they wanted. But on, on, with a warning, he says, they've received their reward in full because God knows the heart. Jesus says, if you do it for others, you've swapped the ultimate for a good, but because you've swapped the ultimate for a good, you've turned it into an idol. And Jesus says, you'll receive no reward from your Father in heaven. Note, the heart counts more than mere action. That's the point here. Just because someone gives doesn't make them a child of the Father in heaven. But instead, when you give, by the way, giving is assumed to the needy, commanded in Scripture. A person who is not generous does not know the generous one. By the way, the opposite, the opposite isn't true either. You can be generous and still not know the generous one. But you can't know the generous one and not be generous. But instead, when you give, don't let, with a bit of humour, your left hand know what your right hand is doing. What did you do just then? I don't know. I'm not telling. You have to give with a hand, by the way, even online. Click. You right-handed? Don't let your left hand know what your right hand clicked on. See the humour? Fear of approval cannot be a factor in such circumstances uh, because you're not even telling yourself that you're a good person. It's your father that matters. He's unseen. He sees what's done in secret. He'll reward you. Firstly, generosity. Secondly, prayer in verses 5 and 6. The pattern is in verses 5 and 6. Jesus deviates in verses 7 to 15. We'll come back to that. But notice again, prayer is assumed when you pray, not if you pray. Jonathan Edwards said, prayer is as natural an expression of faith as breathing is of life. When you pray, when you breathe, don't be like the hypocrites who love to be seen by others. Aren't you a great prayer? You're such a spiritual person, so grand with your words, you're really in touch with God. Jesus says, they've received their reward in full. Tick, they got what they wanted. But Jesus says, when you pray, your Father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. By the way, this doesn't mean that you can't pray, for example, publicly in church, any more than your generosity can be seen. In 1 Peter, he says, uh, do your, let your light shine before men so that they'll see your, others will see your good deeds and praise your Father who's in heaven. In other words, the motivation is right. And the same thing with praying. In a few moments' time, Jenny's praying in prayer. She's in the hot spot with this one. <laughs> um, but she has to examine her heart, you know, it doesn't exclude people praying in church. You can. We want people to, uh, but you don't do it so that people say, aren't you great? You've got to check your motives. The prophet Daniel, for example, went to his window and prayed towards Jerusalem with the window open in a way that was seen, but he didn't do it to be seen. He didn't do it as a motivation to be praised. Heck no. The guy got killed, thrown into a lion's den for it. It's because it's what he always did. Martin Luther said, Grant that I may pray, not pray alone with my mouth. Help me that I may pray from the depths of my heart. Secondly, thirdly, fasting. Notice Jesus says, when you fast, he expected that you would fast. It's a very Jewish discipline. It's about self-discipline. It's about the subjugation of the flesh to the will, to the will of God in particular. 
You know, when you really want something and you do without it, you're teaching yourself before God that your desires don't rule. And it's about creating a space for prayer, especially back in those days when it took half a day to prepare a meal. I saw that in Uganda, by the way. I saw the, the uh, cook start the meal and at lunchtime for dinner. Uh, by fasting, you're perhaps creating space for prayer. It's about letting God know what you really want. In Isaiah 58, the people wonder why their fasting hasn't done the trick. In Isaiah 58, verse 3, why have we bothered fasting, they say, and you've not seen it, God? We, why have we humbled ourselves and you've not noticed? In other words, we put the dollar of piety into the vending machine of a faith. Where's my can of fizzy happiness? God says, your heart was what I wanted. God says, yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit your workers and other things. Jesus says, verse 16, when you fast, don't be like the hypocrites who disfigure their faces. They look all sacrificial. Why? Well, you know the pattern, in order to show others that they're fasting, to show off, to virtue signal. Instead, he says, when you fast, wash all on your face. Don't let people know. God sees it. God notices. Your Father who's unseen, he sees what's done in secret. I love that play on words, by the way. The one who's unseen sees you. The one that you can't see with your eyes has eyes. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. <laughs> the one who has no eyes sees. And you have eyes, but you have to care about the one who is unseen. It takes faith. Four things then to conclude, to tend to your soul. First, I want you to think about you on your own. You on your own. Robert Tannehill in 1975, hence the gender-exclusive language. I apologize for that. In the quote on page one, he writes, the text of Matthew 6 realistically reflects the depth of man's need for such reward. Man is insecure, for the validity of his life is open to question. He must be assured that his life is worthwhile, it has meaning, and he seeks this assurance from others. Pretty normal. But the resulting search for such approval can dominate the whole of a man's life, and indeed can disfigure his soul. Such a search can disfigure her soul. Moreover, just because this reward is so important to us, we're afraid to let it out of our control. We become little gods. Against this text insists that a disciple of Jesus must dare to live for God's reward alone. Who are you on your own when it's just you and God? By the way, unless there is no God, in which case you are on your own when you're alone. When you close the door and you go into your room, there's a God who sees, the one who's unseen sees. Sees what's in your heart. Christians often say, who you are on your own is who you are. Community is important, by the way. Regular community, the creation of habits. John said this last week, John Dixon, can really form something beautiful in your life and behaviours. But who you are on your own is who you are. God sees you on your own 
count. Who are you on your own? Second, there's you on your knees before God. If you aren't praying on your own, you aren't relating to God. To be a Christian is, in some sense, to pray. You don't become a Christian by praying except as a door to a God who embraces you by the justifying work of Christ, by the grace of God. But to be a Christian is to relate to God, to know God. So to be a Christian is to pray. And by the way, you don't have to be a brilliant prayer. I know that there are people who are raised with prayer, kids from homes where their parents taught them to pray. And a prayer, in some sense, is natural to them. And they often fight why they're praying as they get older. But there's other people who have faith as a second language. You became a Christian as an adult, and praying doesn't feel as natural to you as breathing does. But I want to say, you don't have to be a brilliant prayer. In fact, as far as I can tell in Scripture, you just need to groan towards God. Romans chapter 8. He hears, he translates it. You have to cry out to him, to cast your cares on him, in whatever words you have. I mean, we have prayer books to help us, that's good. But to thank him, to receive something good and actually stop and thank him, to present your request to God. And when you do, you gain a peace that surpasses understanding guarding your heart and guarding your mind in Christ Jesus. And it comes precisely because in praying you realise you don't have to control the situation. Be careful if you want to ridicule hashtag thoughts and prayers. Be careful what you're giving up. Because if you learn to pray, you're giving up, in many ways, the fear of controlling a situation or losing control of a situation. You don't have to worry about the approval of others. You can rest in God. You can cast all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. There's you on your own, you on your knees before God. In our strategic planning, which you'll see on September the 30th, we're hoping that our people choose a deeper discipleship than the one they have with a persistent prayer life. We want growth in this area. What's interesting to me is that I can never really know what's going on. You know, not even by the, the people closest to me. Only God knows these things. Third, there's you at peace. In the middle of our text today, Jesus deviates from the pattern to make a point about peace and pagan superstition, to which the gospel of Jesus Christ is the answer. Look at verse 7. And when you pray, do not keep babbling like pagans, for they think they'll be heard because of their many words. They'll think they'll get the attention of the gods. Do not be like them, because your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. The word pagan there, by the way, isn't a slur. You know, he's a pagan. It's a real word, meaning people who live with many gods and therefore those gods are competing and therefore you never know, quite know whether you've got the ear of your god or whether your god is winning over another god, creating superstition, black cats, walking under ladders, crossing your fingers, sending wishes. You know, all of it really is the start of superstition and the gospel of Jesus Christ overturned that, something that again John Dixon talked about in the last couple of weeks. I believe that there are Christian leaders who model and teach about prayer in ways that look more pagan than they do Christian. In other words, they pray in such a way that they're trying to get God to hear you, trying to be more fervent, more forceful, with longer prayers, repeating prayers, incantation-like repetition. 
trying in many ways in some form to show an immovable God that you're here fighting to have enough faith for God to hear you. I submit to you that such prayers and such teaching about prayers is closer to bar worship than it is to the simple resting faith that Jesus brings. Do not be like them because your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. (laughs) Be at peace. I had in my notes here, He heard you the first time you prayed. That's not true. He heard you before the first time you prayed. Persistence in prayer, like the persistent widow in Luke chapter 18 or 19, means that you yearn for something, like the psalmist, and persistence, but persistence itself does not get the immovable God to notice you. He already has. He's a Father in heaven who sees. That's why in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, Paul writes, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine, according to the power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Alfred Lord Tennyson said this, More things are wrought by prayer than this world dreams of. And this is why the, the gospel of Jesus is how God brings you a peace, you on your knees, on your own, with peace. And lastly, there's you with the answer to the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is first short. You're not trying to twist the immovable mover. It's a simple expression of trust. The Lord's Prayer is a prayer for God to come and judge the world and save the world. That's why I'm always nervous about politicians saying it in Parliament House. I'm like, do you really know what you're saying about this chamber? You know what you're praying? This is, of course, why Jesus is the answer to his own prayer. The Lord's Prayer is a prayer for God to come and hallow his name in a culture that denigrates his name. It's a prayer for his kingdom to come rather than to have my nest feathered. It's a prayer for thy will, not my will, to be done on earth as it is in heaven, not that God would have in heaven what is in my mind on earth. God doesn't conform to your will, you conform to his. It's a prayer also for forgiveness, transforming forgiveness, as Jesus points out in verses 14 and 15, one that allows you to pass it on. It's a prayer for provision, give us today our daily bread, and for protection from evil. You need you to be you on your own. You need to be you in prayer and at peace. And you need to be you with an answer to the Lord's Prayer. And his name is Jesus. His life, his death, his resurrection is the answer to his own prayer. It's his kingdom which will come. His will be done. His grace to know, to be alive in. His grace animating my heart, transforming it according to his will. That's what allows you rest. For he knows my name. Let's pray. Father, so risky since we all desire approval in some form or another to choose the approval of the one who is unseen the one who sees what's done in secret, and yet so profound and potentially liberating 
that instead of chasing after the approval of others, being torn and twisted in every direction, that we would seek the approval of one, a Father in heaven, who helps us to act appropriately in this world. Father, we pray that on our own, we might be people who trust, who pray, who rest in Christ's saving work. We thank you for this in Christ's name. Amen.